This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Sunil Yapa, author of the novel Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. The story is told from seven different perspectives and takes place in 1999 in Seattle during the World Trade Organization protests. Some of the points of view include protesters, police, and a young man unwittingly swept up in the chaos. Yapa holds a BA in economic geography from Penn State University and an MFA in fiction from Hunter College. He grew up in Pennsylvania with what he calls a sense of double identity. His father is from Sri Lanka and his mother is from Montana. We began the interview discussing his fractured identity. I think probably most writers have some sense of a double identity, at least in the sense of insider-outsider, or or something that I've heard writers say often, um, and I've felt often, is that sense of always observing, even when you're taking part in a scene, even, even at times observing yourself. Um, I have a friend who wrote a piece about not even really being present at when his wife was giving birth to their first son. And there was one part of him that was already writing the essay. So, so I think all writers, yeah, have that, have that um, double identity. But I also think for me in particular, and my particular sort of double identity, makes it really interesting for me to write about the U.S. because I'm wholly American. I mean, I grew up here... Um, this is basically the, the culture that I feel the most comfortable with. But there's an, I'm enough of an outsider that I can uh, look at it and criticize it and have sort of different opinions on it. Um, I can remember growing up, and you know, this was just a fact of, my, of where I grew up and my family. Um, my parents arguing over whether it was better to eat with your hands, and that would be my dad's side. You eat curry with your hands. Or to eat with a fork and a knife, what was proper, right? So it's not just what is better, but what's correct. So right, so very early, I was sort of interrogating or realizing that the cultural norms may not be so solid. You know that they might they, they might differ depending on who you are and depending on where you're from. And that's a that sort of seems to me now ready made for a writer to to be interrogating what's normal and what the cultural norms are. Did you start writing at a young age? I did start writing when I was in my teens. I was writing some, a bit of fiction. I internalized this, but as the child of, as the son of a Sri Lankan immigrant, and, and my dad, it's not that he discouraged, he didn't ever discourage me from writing, but I guess I didn't take writing really as a serious occupation. And I guess I, I had a sense, certain sense of a burden of, um, my dad left Sri Lanka in 1964, he was one of two people to leave that year um, to come to the U.S. My childhood memories of my father are quite literally the sound of a, a tea a spoon in a teacup, making cups of endless cups of tea, and you know the, the clacking keys of a keyboard, you know, and grading student papers late into the night. So I was very aware, I guess, of the sacrifices my dad had made, and I don't think that's unusual for the children of immigrants. There was some part of me, I guess, that felt, although I was very clear that I wanted to be a writer and had some natural affinity for it um, and was always reading as a kid, I think around 17 or 18, I just 
there was some sense that it wasn't serious enough. It wouldn't wouldn't be a serious occupation. And so for about ten years, I went in a different direction entirely. I studied geography, which is what my dad teaches, and I studied with him, and um, and we we worked on a book together. And I am so grateful for that education. Um, but when I graduated and was preparing for a PhD in geography, I took a year off. Uh, I went to teach English in China, and thank God I did that because the moment I arrived there, I started writing, and I and I just realized right away this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is significant. This matters. And and this is taking me a little bit longer to internalize, but. This does justice to the sacrifices, any of the sacrifices my dad made. It's not, it's not frivolous. What do you mean it, it pays justice? Just tell me a little more about that. Writing matters, I think, is the simplest way to put it. I think part of what, I, of what I've grown up with and the values I've grown up with, uh, my, so my, my mom is a nurse, and, a nurse anesthetist, and my dad you know, as a professor, he teaches about poverty in the developing world, and then more recently, for about the last 15 to 20 years, has run a program in West Philly, doing service learning um, in a community in West Philly, doing projects generated by the community there. And so I guess I always thought part of what you do in life has to do a lot with service. And, um, and, that's, and I guess that's what I equate with a sort of significant occupation is if is there some part of service involved in that and this is just the way that I'm built I feel my writing has to be of service to some people touch people's lives or move people and if it can do that then it then it's worthwhile and then it's uh, I guess a significant enough occupation for me to feel like you know that I'm not I'm not wasting all the effort that my parents and particularly my dad put in to to getting here. You know, I, I guess I'm I guess I'm I'm overly aware maybe, and this is earlier on in my life. I was overly aware of just how lucky I was. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sunil Yapa, author of the novel Your Heart Is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. Your novel, Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist, is political in nature, meaning it is about a political issue, the WTO meetings in Seattle in 1999 and the accompanying protests. I always say it's only political if you think compassion is, is political. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really, I honestly did not set out to write a political novel or to write with an axe to grind or with an, I really didn't set out with any agenda other than, um, to investigate those protests and to, and to the one rule I had was practice was empathy really was practice empathy and sympathy for the characters. But, but, but but yeah, honestly, I didn't, I didn't sit out. I didn't, you know, maybe sometimes we confuse the word political and particularly political novel with didactic or polemic, meaning that, that I have some answer and I'm going to teach or preach to the reader about, some, some issue that I think is important or significant. And, and, and as an artist and as a writer, I find that to be a totally empty enterprise. I, 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 don't, I don't find any value in that. Because it's, people wouldn't really read it in the first place. And secondly, good fiction comes from questions, not from answers. And uh, 
one of my good friends, Peter Malford, says he needs to be sufficiently confused about a subject before he want, before he wants to write about it. And that was very much how I felt about the Seattle protest when I started writing about it. I, I wasn't um, on either side, and I wasn't entirely sure that protests were an effective way to create change. I wasn't entirely sure I agreed with the methods the protesters used, and I certainly was not sur- uh, sure that I agreed with the methods that the police used um, to clear the streets in those days. So it was more an investigation than any kind of, here are the, here are all the answers to the world's problems. I mean, how boring is that? Although I guess that'd be nice because then we'd have all the answers. So you were inspired to write this story by some photos you saw of the protests and thinking about globalization. How did you turn those images and thoughts into a story? Your story is told from seven points of view. How did you get to that decision? Yeah, that's a great question. Years, years, architecture, and losing a draft. Uh, so, so the first draft of this manuscript, I finished, it took me about two years to finish it. It was 604 pages. And I finished in, uh, I was living in a little beach house in Chile. And I had no internet. I had um, no printer. My security measure was hiding my laptop in the oven. Um, and I didn't back up. I didn't back it up. I'm probably I probably will be the last person in the digital age foolish enough for this to happen to. I never backed it up. I finished it. Six hundred and four pages. There was about I don't know sixty characters. It was just this sort of wild mess of a thing very intellectual um you know there was there was like very postmodern very sort of meta there was clippings from an encyclopedia that i had made up that were stuck in there um all sorts of made up words and one of those texts you know a real collage or pastiche of different things um i came back to the u.s i used to work as a traveling salesman and I was in Chicago, and someone broke into my hotel room and stole my laptop that had the only existing copy of the book on it, and I lost it, uh, which was devastating, of course. Um, and I was depressed for about three months. I watched every. I went back to my dad's house. I laid on the couch and watched every game of the college basketball tournament. I watched a lot of Netflix, and. You know, honestly, this is the moment, I think, when I thought I must be a writer or this is probably what I'm going to do. Because out of that sort of absolute depression, I started thinking about the book again. It started bubbling up and, and not um, anything grandiose, but, but small technical issues. You know, things like, wow, was, was 60 characters really the way to go? What if, what, about, what if I focused on that one cop? He seemed really interesting. As soon as I started, it started bubbling up again. I thought, oh, it, it, it was both depressed. It was added to the depression and also, I guess, a relief because I knew I was gonna. I, I said to myself, I'm gonna write this thing again. I can't believe it. And um, I think now that that was a huge gift because it allowed me exactly as you said to take a lot of these very different strands of of things that I was fascinated by, but that weren't necessarily story material or weren't necessarily coherent, 
And it allowed me to, to work out in my own way in 600 pages um, a way that they would be coherent and what what fit and what didn't. And, and quite clearly, an encyclopedia did not fit in that in that world. And so then when I went back to write it again, um, I tore up my notes. I tore up pretty much everything I that I could find. Uh, and I started again. And I decided I need to focus on character. Um, and so then I spent, honestly, probably another year sort of um, trying out different characters and seeing how they would work, trying different voices and seeing one of them, you know, at this point, three years into the project, I realized I was in way over my head that as a debut novel, um, this was going to, this required technical skills that were really beyond what I had because it wasn't just trying out new voices. It was trying out how those voices were going to play against the other voices and if you could have a coherent whole or even an interesting book that moved forward and wasn't just a mess. Um, so it took a lot of time. And, and at that point, I think the process became, um, the metaphor is almost architectural, or not architectural, sorry, archaeological, um, in the sense that every draft uncovered another layer of clues towards what what seemed to me, and although it sounds a bit mystical, what seemed to me to already be there, or what the book was trying to tell me, or what some sort of um, deeper creative consciousness on my part was already aware of, but my bustling sort of intellectual mind wasn't ready for yet. But I would do a draft, and I would see clues of that. Oh my gosh, that that character is very interesting. Oh my gosh. That um, relationship is very interesting. A great one would, is the main relationship of the book and what became, to me, the most moving emotional story of the book is um, Victor, who's the main character, who's 19 years old, he's run away from home, and he's back in Seattle, and his father, who's the chief of police. That took me until probably the last year of writing to realize that that, that was actually the relationship. And as soon as I realized it, I thought that that was true all along. That made, of course, that's true. As soon as I saw it, I said, of course, that's true. But it took me that long to let myself do something like that or to, or to, to discover it. So I guess the short answer to your question is, is how does it go from this raw swamp of, of ideas, but also, you know, not just ideas, but things that um, really, really felt were coming from a deep, a deep part of myself that, that, that I felt really moved by. It wasn't just things that I was intellectually interested in. It was things that I felt very emotionally moved by and that I really cared about. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sunil Yappa, author of the novel Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. So one of the moments that is really interesting to me in the book is that you have this character, the the police chief, who is really, I mean, I think he's a good guy and he's really trying to lead the police force and to pull off a nonviolent 
response to the nonviolent protesters. And he gets this phone call from the mayor who isn't even really present, just saying, get them out of here right now. Get clear the street. And that's to me when everything sort of went into chaos. And it made me think a lot about just sort of the power of a boss and Mm -hmm. everyone, you know, most people have a boss. Can you talk about this? I mean, I'm sure you also researched this um, in the real incident. That, that's actually very accurate. It's true that President Clinton was arriving that night, and there was a lot of pressure from the Secret Service um, on down to the governor, who ended up declaring a, a state of emergency and bringing in the National Guard the next day, or even that night, um, to the mayor. And there's a whole line of sort of top-down bureaucracy Um and I don't know who is ultimately responsible. It's hard to, to say ultimately where responsibility lies. Does it lie with the most abstract person who I guess would be Clinton as the commander in chief? He could have asked, but he could have said, don't tear gas those people, I guess. Or is it the person who's on the street, the police chief directly in charge of that decision? Um, that was, that's an interesting thing to investigate. And it, and it's interesting also because it, um, you know, it's directly in conflict or, or the direct opposite of what the protesters themselves were trying to develop, which was not a top-down series of, of leaders. In fact, there, they would say that there were no leaders at that protest. It was horizontal, and decisions were made by consensus, which means everyone agrees or you don't do it. Or you don't do it. So it's a very different way of working. The police did get brutal, and those are very vivid scenes. I'm assuming that that's pretty accurate, and what was it like to research and then write it and have your head in this brutality, especially given what's going on in the world today? Well, you know, one one thing is that when I started writing this in 2009, it was long before there had been protests that were, I guess, sort of making making news in the mainstream media. Of course, there's always been, been protests, but it was before Occupy, it was before Arab Spring, and it was before, obviously, the protests of this summer in Baltimore and St. Louis and New York and all over the country. Um, you know, writing about violence is really difficult. Um, it's it's very difficult to research because you have to ask people about it, and that's a pretty that's a pretty traumatic event that people don't necessarily want to relive. Um, and I also wanted to be very careful in my depiction of it to not um, sensationalize it, to not, in a sense, have a pornography of violence. I'm not interested in that. But I am interested in representing what really happened. Um, I am interested in telling the truth. And um, as Marlon James says, you know, he's talking about his book, A Brief History of Seven Killings, which is some pretty graphic violence. He says, I'm not interested in PG versions of violence. This is what happened. And it's as difficult as it is to write it, as difficult as it is to read it, it's still far easier to write it and to read it than to experience it. And in some ways, I I guess I'm asking as a writer or, or I'm trying as a writer to bear witness to that, and I'm asking the reader to bear witness to that to some extent, without putting any, without shoving anyone's face in it. Do, do you know what I mean? You, I, I don't. There's, there's no sense in that. And tell me about the title. 
the title. I love the title. It comes from, um, I originally discovered it in that archive, actually. I was going through, and the title at the time was uh, something very uncreative, something like Seattle, the book, or Day One, or something like that. Um, and I saw it was actually written on a sign that someone had, your heart is a muscle the size of a fist, and I immediately thought, yeah, that's it. Because it's the idea that empathy can be a radical act. The idea that caring is forceful, is physical, can change the world. Um, I discovered much later that it's actually um, from a woodcut and the subtext, keep on loving, keep on fighting. And it was something that, that sort of spontaneously took, caught fire and became something people said to each other on the day and, and, and really caught the spirit of the protest. And to me, absolutely caught the spirit of the book and, what, and the project that I was trying to do. So tell me about your influences. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Someone that really influenced me uh, is Don DeLillo. And um, his, you know, obviously his most famous book is, I think, White Noise is the one people know really well, which I'm actually less familiar with. My favorite book of all time is Underworld, which is a bit intimidating for people because it's long. I took a long time to read it. Um, I've read it probably three times all the way through, and it's just one of those books. I think we all have those books that we just dip into and can read a section. I must have read it ten times that way. It's really influential for a lot of reasons. I, I love it, his language. Um, I love his his use of, of narrators. I mean, talk about a lot of characters. I mean, it's a absolute symphony of a novel. There's so many characters. And he's really trying to engage, I think, with an American reality, which is really exciting. I'd love to read to you from the beginning of Underworld, which actually started as a short novella about um, a baseball game in the 50s. And DeLillo does something that a lot of my favorite writers do, which is how, how, how the, the big things in life, the political things in life, um, are really experienced in the day-to-day mundane, um, little things that we do. Uh, so he's writing about a baseball game in this passage that I'm going to write, um, read to you. He's writing about a 1950s playoff baseball game, and it's the, these are the opening pa- um, passages in Underworld. He speaks in your voice, American, and there's a shine in his eye that's halfway hopeful. It's a school day, sure, but he's nowhere near the classroom. He wants to be here instead standing in the shadow of this old rust hulk of a structure, and it's hard to blame him. This metropolis of steel and concrete and flaky paint and cropped grass and enormous Chesterfield packs of slants on the scoreboards, a couple of cigarettes jutting from each. Longing on a large scale is what makes history. This is just a kid with a local yearning, but he's part of an assembling crowd, Anonymous thousands off the buses and trains, people in narrow columns tramping over the swing bridge above the river. And even if they are not a migration or a revolution, some vast shaking of the soul, they bring with them the body heat of a great city and their own small reveries and desperation, the unseen something that haunts the day. Men in fedoras and sailors on shore leave, the stray tumble of their thoughts, going to a game. Do you want to say anything else more about it? Or? 
Well, I think that, I think there couldn't be anything more true than that opening line, which is he speaks in your voice American, and there's something it's it's English, yeah, but but it's almost as if Delillo has invented or has, or has learned or has tapped into an American idiom. Something that I certainly am influenced by is the way that he can shift between a, a tight viewpoint of one character, and we get obviously we go more into that character as we get into the book. And also pulling a sort of wide lens, pulling way back and showing us a crowd. That was something that uh, one of the technical things that I, I was working on in my book that I found DeLillo to be enormously um, influential and helpful. And also really, ex- it's exciting. I like that. I, I really like it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sunil Yapa, author of the novel, Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. Can you read a passage from your novel, something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like? I'll, I'll read it to you and then I'll tell you why, why I found it hard. This is John Henry. It's from the, his first section. John Henry is one of the main main protesters. He's a former church man, and he, he really believes in the protest. Look with him at his people. This man who once preached from a pulpit, John Henry, who was wound up and weary with too much love, too much joy, too much rage. How many shelter cots that barely registered the man's weight so light he was, the soft pillow of how many stone steps had cradled his head. John Henry, who had lost his church, look with him at his people. Look at his God made manifest in every form and shape of the broken world. Look with him at how they exit the church in an orderly fashion and tip their chins to the sky. Look at how they come from the darkness of their homes, back stiff, stretching and tying the bandanas tight, checking each other's faces for an idea of what violence this day might bring. Look with him at these wet American faces, ordinary and beautiful, and tell me you don't feel more than a little bit afraid. They wanted to tear down the borders, to make a leap into a kind of love that would be like living inside a new human skin, wanted to dream themselves into a life they did not yet know. He heard them in the streets saying, another world is possible, and beneath his ribs broken and healed, and twice broken and healed, And thrice broken and healed, he shuddered and thought, God help us, we are mad with hope. Here we come. So that was really difficult for me to write, because to be honest, when I started writing this book in the very first draft, I wasn't that sympathetic with the protesters, certainly not as much as he is. But like I said, you create a character, and you set certain challenges for yourself, and you have to be true to that character and true to those challenges. And... Through his perspective and his his love for the protesters, I, I myself was forced to to look more clearly at why they were there, at what they had to risk to be there, at what people were willing to suffer for the well-being of of people three continents away, and that really changed my perspective on on protest, and it certainly certainly unpacked the soundbite that we hear on the news far too often. Violent protesters clash with police. This sort of cracked that open for me. Where do you write? Where do I write? I, you know, this book was written 
over the course of six years in 17 different places in six different countries in five different states. So uh, for this book, at least, I write or I wrote at kitchen tables all over the world. I now live in Woodstock and I have a desk. And uh, above all, I like to write in a place that's quiet where I have huge chunks of time to write. I'm not, I'm not someone who can get up before work and write for half an hour. I wish I was, but I'm not. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? For a long time, I would usually write somewhere until I ran out of money. And then I would go find some sort of a job, which was often uh, working as a traveling salesman. I also worked for my friend's um, camera company, Condor Cam. And so I would get away from, I would put my novel down for two or three months while I worked building up a little nest egg so that I could go to another country and, and write for another six months. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? On this novel, um, I was very lucky to go to Hunter College in New York City for my MFA. And even luckier than that, I lived with uh, one of the best writers in the program and became one of my best friends who was himself also an, uh, he was an activist and, uh, and still is and was at the Seattle protests. Um, and so most of this book, um, on a first read, I showed to him, his name's Tennessee Jones. And how have you dealt with rejection? How have I dealt with rejection? I deal with rejection, I think, in very much the same way I deal with success, which is, uh, I don't have a specific strategy. Um, my life has been filled with rejection, um, and my life is filled with some success too. And I think the truth is you build a routine as a writer. You, you, the most important thing is to get to the desk every day or to the kitchen table as it may be. And you continue, you continue working on a short story. You continue working on your novel. You continue working on your essay. And you, I think the most important thing for me with rejection and success is understanding that there are a lot of readers out there. There are a lot of um, so-called gatekeepers, and every one of them has a different opinion, comes from a different reading history, and um, may or may not be your ideal reader. And that rejection is not cast in stone, or or even or even a ref- that's why you need inner validation. It's not really a reflection of you as a writer. It's a reflection of whoever was reading your work. And one of the hardest things to do is to keep working even when it seems like there are no ideal readers for you. But uh, if you're doing good work and honest work, you eventually find those people. And what is your favorite word? There's a word that comes up again and again in this book or in descriptions of this book. And it is one of my favorite words. I, I have a sense of so this book takes place in Seattle. There's some some sort of influence of grunge and a little bit of punk to it. I, I have the sense that I wrote it at a kitchen table, but I want the book to sound as though I recorded it in a garage. So one of my favorite words uh, about this book is raw. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Sunil Yappa, author of the novel Your Heart is a Muscle the Size of a Fist. 
You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.